As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about a strong-willed little boy named Danny Moran, whose wish to see the back of his strict mom comes true in the most unfortunate way when she is kidnapped by aliens. Realising he actually loves his mom, little Danny Moran enlists the help of a bionic cat, a subterranean earthling called Gribble, and me as well, to defeat the Martian supervisor and save his mom from having her brain downloaded into robotic Martian nannies. Jesus. Oh, sorry, wait. Uh, sorry, that's the plot of the 2011 Disney movie Mars Needs Moms. Thank God. This podcast actually has zero Martians and few, if any, moms, but it does contain a whole lot of fumbling, movie-related chin-wagging. I'm Sam Foster, and sitting across from me is the plucky nine-year-old Danny Moran. Hello, dear white people. This week I'll be reviewing Dear White People, the comedy drama examines race relations in an Ivy League university. Meanwhile, Sam will be tackling Love and Mercy, the story of beach boy turned beach man Brian Wilson. Plus, we look at the latest news surrounding Tarantino's upcoming western The Hateful Eight, ponder why Hayao Miyazaki just refuses to retire, and tell you how you could be in the latest J.K. Rowling film adaptation. Can I, can I be in it? Yeah. All of which will leave just enough time for me to perform Led Zeppelin's The Immigrant Song at 4bpm in a segment Katie has categorically assured me will make the podcast. Da-dum, da-da-da-dum, da-dum, da-da-da-dum. First thing we need to address, James Andrews is okay. Oh my God. <laughs> he, uh, whew, Ooh, Thank he got God. in touch. He Thank God. said the following. I'm still here, guys. 
Just thought I'd share the limelight for a few weeks. We'll be back with some outrageous remarks later this week. Watch this space. Oh, Mr. Outrageous Remarks, James. But wait a second. I mean, he just po- I mean, do we know this James posted this or someone just using his Facebook? What if someone's James looked up somewhere and someone's just got access to his Facebook account? James, can you leave us a voice message or something, yeah. James? Something only you guys would know. Okay, James. Yes, send us a message that only we would get. You know what I mean, James? Maybe you can send <laughs> us a photograph of yourself holding today's newspaper in a public place. Yeah. That. And that, that way we know that you're all right. <laughs> Please do that. Please do that, James. We have also had some follow-on correspondence from last week. On the last episode of the podcast, me and Danny had fun coming up with bad but thematically connected movie bill, uh, movie double bills. Yeah. After Dan Noll messaged us, and in a first, listeners responded to our calls for more of the same, and they did some suggestions, and I was a bit upset to find out that they were better than ours. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit shit now because... Their ones are way better than ours. Yeah. I mean, if they'd done this first, we could have maybe come up with better ones or ones that are as good. Is but there any way we, we can just... get them to prepare the whole podcast and we just read them out, read out what they say? <laughs> <laughs> I think the whole thing would be a lot more you professional. Know what, what we could do, we could just record this as if this is the previous episode and then I'll just retitle the episodes on uh, iTunes. <laughs> so yes. future generations will think. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Good point. Because we're doing this mainly for posterity, right? To fool. Um, yeah. people in the future <laughs> yeah yeah like god and dinosaur bones exactly. okay exactly let's hear some of their reader input well uh dan the architect as future generations will refer to as, um suggested the full monty and the full metal jacket one's about the dehumanizing effect of war one's about some guys from sheffield strip stripping so so a classic classic night in Callum Russell was very prolific of his suggestions. He suggested Fifty First Dates, the 2004 Adam Sandler Drew Barrymore rom com about a woman who has amnesia and has, has to date her 50 times, and Fifty First Date, which is that <laughs> Samuel Jackson movie when he's in Scotland or something. I don't know what that's about. He yeah, also okay. suggested the 2008 Harvey Milk biopic Milk and Coffee, the 1973 black exploitation film starring Pam Grier. He also suggested Eight and a Half and Nine and a Half Weeks. One's a Mickey Rourke rom-com. One's a exploration of uh, artistic right. angst. Movie director having a breakdown. And then, to, you know, to rub salt in the, the wound, he came up with a better 120 days of Sodom one, which was 120 days of Sodom and 500 days of summer, which is much funnier than my suggestion. Yeah. So thanks a lot, Callum, for making yeah. me look a fucking idiot. Well, the titles sound close to each other, but would it have led on to a more entertaining conversation than the one we had about um, being trapped under a rock? And fucking each other in the ass. Yeah. I don't know if it would. So. It's true. That's going to make the Christmas highlights real, that conversation. Oh, yeah. And uh, Chris suggested Babe and Babel, Kinky Boots and Das Boots, Funny Games and Funny People, and Noah and Shower, which, I mean, that's probably not much funnier than all of our suggestions. And then finally, Dougal suggested Legends of the Guardians, The Owl of Gahul, and dot, 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 looks like I myself into a corner here, and then posted... And loving documentary eulogy, Rick Mayo, Lord of Misrule, which I guess rhymes. Was, was Dougal thinking that it was just a rhyming Dumble Bell thing? <laughs> I mean, I'm, really, I'm worried for Dougal's health because <laughs> when, comments... I read those, when I read those messages, first of all, Facebook puts it the wrong way around chronologically for some reason, so yeah, that yeah. confused me for a while. And I was just thinking, has he been back to the dentist? <laughs> What's going on? And then... Um... As this is becoming a sort of Dougal uh, trademark, he responded to an article that was on film a month ago. <laughs> this one was about Peter Bradshaw claiming that Jurassic Park, oh, Jurassic World, sorry, was uh, passes the Bechdel test because the raptors are female. Mm. And 
they which talk is, to each other. Which is hilarious. <laughs> which is ridiculous. And then um, Dougal added the following. Come to think of it, doesn't Sam Neill discover that the raptors can talk to each other by blowing through flutes in their skulls in JP3? And later they have a chat about eating him. And considering the hunter raptors are more likely to be female, is Jurassic Park secretly a feminist franchise? Well... Is that true, Danny? I haven't seen Jurassic Park 3. Do they have flutes seen... in their skulls? Yeah, there's a bit where Sam Neill has got like a, a skeleton of like a... Uh, pterodactyl thing yeah and he like does a little he blows into it and then like communicates with him does a bit of whispering prototype ah. Chris Pratt whispering they probably saw that scene like that was the best scene in the trilogy right well steal that steal that I mean it's not it's not is it I don't think women? the most I think for a real feminist franchise the women have to be human yeah you know I think it's really if you've got really strong depictions of animals of either gender we're really looking at an animal rights um, documentary, you know, or like film, not documentary necessarily. And there's only well, one. Movies. Are they feminist? No, but like. Well, they're very. All right, okay. They're anthropomorphic, I guess. But that's probably different. That's yeah. different. That's... I'm thinking of like ones where it's just animals being animals. Yeah. And Jurassic Park has one woman in it, so. So. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> <laughs> so. So. Thank you, Dougal. Thank, Thank you, everyone else, for your contributions. Keep them flooding in, and uh, we'll read them out. But uh, that whole thing where we send you shit, that's dead, by the way. It's dead and <laughs> that's gone. Fucking dead. That's too busy. That's too fucking busy. We're all too busy. Also, it died about uh, four months ago, so if you sent a letter before that, after that, I mean, yeah. you're not getting anything. Not getting anything <laughs> from us. Maybe that's why people don't run in as much as they used to. <laughs> Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. Hateful Eight News. Hateful Eight is the next Tarantino film. His eighth film? Is that correct? Um, no, maybe not. Yes. Yes. Yes, because he counts Kill Bill as one film. Okay. So, yes. So, uh, yes, his eighth film. Um, it's another Western following on from Django Unchained with a bunch of uh, horrible people holed up in a cabin in uh, Wyoming in the 19th century. And excitingly, Tarantino has got um, the 86-year-old legendary composer Ennio Morricone to score his film. He's writing a brand new score. It's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Tarantino is obviously a big Morricone fan. He's used his music many times in his previous films. And there was an original Morricone song in Django Unchained. Yeah, and this and, is his uh, first original score ever for any of his movies. Because he, uh, he just um, well, just... does Kill Bill count? There's, orig- oh, there's, there's original some, there's score some in Rizza, Kill Bill. Rizza some Rizza stuff. Some Rizza. Yeah. But I just mean like the entire musical, because usually he's sort of jukebox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said in the past that like he doesn't want to give that much power to somebody else. Yeah. But I guess when it's Morricone, it's like just take my movie and, you know. He's a genius. He's a genius. Yeah. The Maybe he didn't man... trust them for the previous ones, but for this one, he does trust him. It's apparently Morricone's first Western score in 40 years or something like that. So uh, it's pretty cool. This is the news that came from uh, the Hateful Eight Comic-Con uh, panel, by the way. Comic-Con's going on. I don't know if you have some other Comic-Con-related news. Um, but uh, another thing Tarantino said on the panel that was quite interesting is that he heavily implied that he was going to make another Western, uh, I guess, before he becomes 15. He has to retire so he doesn't make <laughs> old man movies. I know 60, isn't it? That's yeah, his yeah. cut-off point when he becomes an old man. So he said, these days you have to make at least three Westerns to call yourself a Western director. Otherwise, you're just dabbling in the genre. So I have to make one more Western to call myself a Western director. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's not... That's, is that really important to him? I guess so. Yeah. Can't call himself a kung fu director or a gangster director or 
No, he can't call himself gangster director. Yeah, is that what he calls himself now? Like, yeah, he says I'm a gangster director. <laughs> I made three gangsters. I'm dab- dabbling in. Uh, <laughs> I'm a gangster director, but I'm dabbling in westerns. I dabbled in a car crash movie. I dabbled in a yeah. uh, what a World War Two film. <laughs> <laughs> I dabbled in. It. Um, I'm also looking forward to seeing this film because it's in some hilariously wide ratio. It's in like two seven five four to eyes one or to, something. Uh, you could be an iguana. You gotta have it. a friend telling you <laughs> what's going on on one side of the screen like the whole time because just, it just goes past the. Um, Human yeah. vision. <laughs> it's it's shot on some incredibly rare lenses. They're like, according to Tarantino, like the same lenses that um, shot Ben Hur and a bunch of these old epics when they use that kind of thing, and they just haven't used them since. But Tarantino is going the opposite way. He's going against the grain, you know. Yeah. Everyone else is going digital, and he's like, I'm not only going to continue to shoot on film, I'm going to shoot on the <laughs> oldest fucking camera I can lay my hands on. Like the next thing is going to be, you know, like whatever the right. Um, yeah. I was, I'm getting the Lumia brothers. Lumia brothers, not the guys who <laughs> flew the first planes, but the Lumia brothers, exactly. He's going to use whatever they did. Yeah, his final film is going to be just a zoetrope he's built. It's going to be fucking massive. <laughs> <laughs> As everyone evolves, he's going to devolve. That's, it. That's the end of that one. That's the end of that one. Um, more news, Danny. More news. Animation legend Hayao Miyazaki just refuses to retire. Yeah, despite having announced his retirement. Despite, yeah, with the, uh, the wind also rises. And he's like, that's it, I'm done. And then fucking six months later, he's back. And uh, according to Anime News Network, the filmmaker has spent the last three years on a 10-minute short and has plans to screen it at the Ghibli Museum in Mitaka, Japan. Wow. So not only has he not been retiring, but he's not been retiring for three years. Was he so. was he planning to make that into a feature-length film, but he was like, this rate is going to take me 27 years. <laughs> just don't have the... <laughs> <laughs> I'll be dead. I've got to, got to stop here. I'll make it 10 minutes. It just got to the inciting incident. He's like, fuck it, just cut it there. <laughs> Um, What's interesting about this one, though, is that it will mark his first and possibly last um, foray into computer animated filmmaking. So, you know, all his other things were beautifully pencil drawn. Yeah, the Studio Ghibli trademark. So Miyazaki's fucking sold out, hasn't he? It's like, it's fucking pathetic. He's had one too many meetings with John Lasseter. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now he wants to be Pixar. Yeah. He's like, if you just switch to CGI, you could make, you know, a movie every every year. So every, you know, 15 years, wherever your output is now, you know. You yeah. Spirited Away 2 tomorrow. Yeah, except, like, except, except clearly not, because he's taken three years with his 10 minutes. <laughs> he's probably <laughs> just still working out how to use Adobe Illustrator or something. It's got like a complex... Uh, <laughs> complex system he's not used to he can't get his head around the plugins. yeah he's probably got like a, some kind of big tablet with a stylus and he's like it's just not the same I can't figure this out <laughs> I mean like he's an animation genius but he probably just can't figure out <laughs> the yeah. tablet can he's he he's probably spending most of those three years watching YouTube tutorials um, yeah anyway like to clarify his position on retiring he said i intend to work until the day i die i retire from feature-length films but not from animation right so it's a te- it was a technical retirement yeah, a technical retirement Pen- it had small print yeah he follows pencil drawings don't have to go away but those who continue to use the medium lack talent so sadly it will fade away so a bit of a fucking fuck you to the next generation <laughs> yeah there's um <laughs> those irish guys who are doing it yeah yeah i watched uh, book of Kells and the new one um well, <laughs> Sea of Shore or something? Yeah. Yeah. Are they any good? I don't know. Did he's you like, Will you watch them and were like, these guys lack talent? Miyazaki is correct? Yeah, Miyazaki watched The Princess and the Frog and he's like, fuck this bullshit. <laughs> Mic drop. But does that even make sense? I don't know. Does this comment make sense? I'm pretty sure most of those animators can draw. Yeah, Aren't I they? don't know. I guess no one's pushing the medium yeah. in the same way. But their last big hit was uh, 
Princess Kaguya, which I didn't mm. like, but it was beautifully animated. So yeah. we're talking about Miyazaki. Anyway, no release plans for the show have been announced. Surely that's going to get... Gonna, it's just going to be for his family, probably. Just have to go to Tokyo, go to his museum. Yeah, you've got to go to Miyazaki's film, house. Film, film chat trip, anyone? Film chat trip to Tokyo, anyone? James, you want to come? James? Do they, do they bowl in Tokyo? They must do. Bowling in Tokyo, James? <laughs> yeah. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Okay, done. Just one more bit of news, maybe. The Harry Potter universe is rumbling slowly back into life. Everyone thought that after Deathly Hallows Part 2 with its big flash forwards, that'd be it. Yeah. Harry's like 40 years old. He's too old now to play himself. Yeah. <laughs> Ron's fat. He's let himself go. Yeah, exactly. So they have to recede into um, memory. But it's a huge um, opportunity for Warner Brothers to make money. <laughs> So it's returning, and um, they're making a movie called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which is an adaptation of the sort of charity book that... Um, yeah, about a, a magical zoologist in New York 70 years before the events of Harry Potter. Exactly, right. So. Which is kind of cool, but there wasn't really any plot, right? No. It was more of a sort of flannimals via Harry Potter universe Precisely. kind of idea. Um, but yeah, they're turning it into a movie, and uh, J.K. Rowling is writing the script, so that would be interesting. So the next step forward that Fantastic Beasts will be taking is on the 18th of July. We're at the Excel Centre in London. They're hosting a big open casting call. Oh, my God. For the soon-to-be iconic character of um, Modesty. And they're casting girls between 8 and 12. Um, What are they looking for? Here's what it says about Modesty. Modesty is a haunted young girl (laughs) with an inner strength and stillness. She has an ability to see deep into people and understand them. Yeah, maybe the ideal person to cast to be someone who didn't even realise there was an audition, but it's just sort of <laughs> was running away from her own demons and entered the room. <laughs> but well, th- so haunted, but with an inner strength. Yeah. So like as though you got a lot of inner demons, but you're like fighting them off. Precisely. Yeah. This is how they got the original cast of the Harry Potter's right opening, open cast calls. So they struck gold there, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so <laughs> will lightning strike a fourth time? <laughs> Well, the fact that they're hosting the Excel Center, which is absolutely enormous, suggests that they will have to they'll be looking really at a disgusting out. number of people, yeah. I feel that sounds kind of awful for all like, these young Harry Potter fans and just like a day of rejections, you know. I know. And it's not going to be a fun <laughs> role for them to audition for. It's not like, you know, you have to ride this mechanical dragon and we'll see how you do that. You know, it's like, That's come in. Stressful. Inner strength and stillness, please. Yeah. So, <laughs> so if good luck. To 12, I'm good like, luck, go, girls you know? of Britain. If, yeah, if, you could pass for an 8 to 12 if, girl. If like, fucking Rachel Delens can, you know, pass herself as an African-American for years, I can pass myself as a 12-year-old girl, <laughs> surely. Yeah, take the, take the uh, Rachel Delens route. Yeah, I'm a master of disguise. 
I'm gonna go there. I'm gonna mail. I'm gonna mail it. I'm gonna mail them my audition. And I'm gonna turn up in person. So, do, do you get me audition? I just nailed it. <laughs> I mailed it and I nailed it. I think I recovered from my uh, my slip there. You did. Okay. Same no same. more news. No more else news. Happened. There's a bunch of Comic Con stuff, but only nerds care. Fuck you, nerds. <laughs> we don't want you on this podcast anymore. Find another podcast, you fucking dorks. Yeah, find your own. Find a different con. Find a cool off. con. That's the one I visit. That's where I got my news. <laughs> yeah, I go to the pussy and blow con. <laughs> and now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ask poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. Okay, so, uh, Dear White People, this is a film which has got a lot of press because of the themes it tackles, mainly race. In fact, uh, complete race. That's all it tackles. <laughs> anyway, this is uh, the debut of writer-director Justin Simeon, and the film uh, is set in a fictional Ivy League university called Winchester, and uh, it starts with a fraternity holding a blackface party where the uh, invite has suggested people find their inner negro and seeing this has turned into a riot and it's all the characters watching it on the news and then it flashbacks to five weeks previously and it follows the events that led up to this and uh, focuses on four black students and their experiences in this predominantly white institution. Right. Uh, these characters are Lionel, who's an awkward gay teenager who wants to be a journalist. Troy, who is a super popular house president and son of the dean. He's like uh, Jock McHandsome. Uh, Coco, who's a fame-hungry vlogger. And Sam, who is this uh, firebrand activist who hosts a radio show called Dear White People. Hence the title. So this film is uh, its good. It's very good. It's more, I would say, it's very all over the place. And its saving grace is just its, its subject matter, which is inherently more interesting because no mainstream film, if you can count this as mainstream, sort of indie hit, is tackling uh, sort of post-Obama racial tensions in America, which is obviously full of the news all the time, yeah. as frankly, as uh, as this film is. But its uh, critique is almost... The thing that makes it good is also its downfall in a way because if I was going to give a pivot review, it's like an argument first and a film second. So you feel like you're watching a blog post. Slightly. I mean, the fact that one of the characters is uh, a sort of activist blogger is, is like, it's basically uh, all the characters are sort of mouthpieces for the director's point of view. Right. Which, and um, there are conversations and like points the film makes about race, which are really smart and on point, but at times I don't really make for good drama, you know. And I was nodding in agreement, but I was, you know, it was a bit of a distancing effect because it's like I'm just watching, I'm not really watching a movie, I'm watching an argument played out with characters. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of things to recommend about it. The thing that's refreshing about it and the thing it tackles uh, really well is the idea that people just think racism doesn't exist anymore, but it just it's just a bit more insidious and subtle and institutionalised. And there aren't people being lynched, but the people are being oppressed in very sort of um, small ways, but like it's the cumulative effect of it. Yeah. And uh, the way it makes that argument is really strong. But the, this is often like a bit lost in it trying to sort of cover everything. There's like a plot line about a reality TV show and Coco wants to get on it, which kind of goes absolutely nowhere. And there's also a thing where like the, the four main characters is kind of, maybe two too many and the characters of Lionel and Sam are like really good and in a way the other two characters don't really add a lot to it and you feel like they're just their characters are just a version of 
a much better character. And it's a bit like they're the prototype versions of these more successful characters. I see. It's uh, It's been compared to Do the Right Thing because of its subject matter, which is a slightly unfair comparison because that's considered like a modern classic. But I think where that film is superior is that it builds to its climax in a very elegant way and it's all like uh, it builds and builds throughout the film. Whereas the blackface party is a bit, not exactly tacked on, but a bit sort of not as successfully built to and the, it's like sort of clumsily handled. Is it as angry as Do the Right Thing? It's no, it's not as angry because it's like the general tone. What's I get? That's another. Do the, do the right thing. It's quite a confrontational film. You know, you watch it to the end, and it's like, you know, you're uncomfortable at the end. Yeah, it hasn't yeah. got that same sort of thing. It's more. It's a bit more sly, and um, it's supposed to be light-hearted. Like it's a sort of satire. The fact that it's a university just stands like a microcosm for society. Yeah, and there's a lot of jokes about how black people uh, maybe feel the need to conform to a certain uh, stereotype a positive stereotype like there's a sort of joke about this black character liking Taylor Swift but she has to listen to it in secret because she feels like she's uh, betraying her um, her blackness her blackness precisely I think like the movie opens itself up to a lot of scrutiny because the themes it's dealing with about how uh, presenting race and people assuming a certain quality about somebody or you know stereotypes are also things uh which could be leveled at any film, like the way people, it's all about um, presentation. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like, um, yeah, there's a certain like crassness to like the white characters. They're a bit cartoonishly villainous and it sort of diminishes the film's point because the black parties like did happen, like these blackface parties and there's like a credit sequence of all these photos of actual parties, but it does it a disservice to sort of like put it in the hands of these slightly cartoonishly villainous idiot frat boys because you feel like that's kind of um, blunting the argument slightly. It's a little bit dumbed down. Well, do you, do you, because, um, because one of the issues that you hear about a lot is kind of white defensiveness. Like, okay, there are these awful like, racist people out there, but that's not me. Yeah. You know? And uh, yeah, do you feel like if, the, if you look at the villains and you're like, that's obviously not me, then it kind of um, yeah, but, like, makes it less subversive because... Yeah, it's partly that and it's partly, it's like, because um, it's like a campus comedy, they're like the evil jocks. Yeah, you know, but when you put that, I'm not sure how successfully they put the sort of like Animal House type movie with the sort of heaviness of the issues. Like at times it's really successful, but at those like that particularly is a bit like a note that doesn't like ring true. Right. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think it's um, it's like a bit of a mess, but it's it's like a conversation starter. Maybe that's what makes it more worthwhile. And like I had, I think like the process of trying to sort of unpack it and reading about it was a more was like a richer experience than the movie itself you could argue um but yeah i would give it a recommendation it's not at the prince charles at the moment so i guess catch it i guess it kind of shows you how rarely films like this come along that it the, the comparison is this movie made in like 1980 <laughs> like whatever i don't know when do the right thing was but yeah yeah it's like this is obviously not something that comes up frequently enough so yeah and uh yeah yeah Check it out. Check it out. I would check it out. And then talk to me about it because I don't know who wants to see this movie and I want to discuss it with somebody. I don't know what to talk to it about. It's quite sad. <coughs> Poor White Danny. My favourite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen and she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end. I went to see a different film to Danny. He went to see a film called 
Dear White People, and I went to see a film about some of the whitest people in American history, <laughs> the Beach Boys. <laughs> so uh, Love and Mercy, um, it's directed by Bill Pollard, who's mainly known as an executive producer. He's executive producer on his, his sort of credit sequence looks very um, impressive. He's a uh, producer on Broadway Mountain, Prairie Home Companion, Into the Wild, 12 Years a Slave, all these uh, yeah. cool Oscar films. Um, and now he's uh, moved to a director. And it's written by this guy called Oren Moverman, who I don't know that well. Oh, yeah, but, he did um, Rampart. He did Rampart, and he's also the writer on I'm Not There. So he's got form on uh, unconventional biopics. Right. I'm Not There was the that weird experimental film about Dylan, uh, Bob Dylan, where he was played by about seven different people, including like Kate Blanchett and like a young black boy and stuff like that. Yeah, I didn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> So Love and Mercy um, follows Brian Wilson, the main songwriter of the Beach Boys, in two different periods in his life. He's played by two different actors. Um, And as a young man, he's played by Paul Dano, and it's set in the 60s. And it's him reaching his kind of creative peak um, as his mental health deteriorates. And then in the 80s, he's played by John Cusack, an older man, and he's coming out of a kind of dark period in his life. And he's trying to... um, be more normal and he's caught between this new romance he's starting with Elizabeth Banks um, and his controlling psychiatrist um, played by Paul Giamatti so I I knew this film's been very well very well received it's another like festival hit and I so I had relatively high hopes going in um, and I was feeling quite positively um, towards whatever I was going to see because I had a couple of pints beforehand <laughs> so that may have influenced you know my feelings about it but I really liked it I thought it was really good it's very interesting not perfect by any means and there are some pitfalls in the uh, music biopic genre which yeah. it does not successfully avoid but it's much feels it feels fresh which i think is absolutely necessary um for these movies about these 20th century musical creative geniuses which uh, you might feel like you've seen before yeah you know, if you've seen like um, walk the line or uh, ray or so something people like talk in lyrics of famous songs and like say i think it's quite it is definitely knows what we're going to do next <laughs> and then he's like <laughs> there is a there is actually a moment there is a moment like that it's kind of a good version of that scene but there's a bit where he goes down he sits at the piano he plays a bunch of chords then some guy comes along he's like that's really good i like that yeah i like that yeah we got to do something with this and then they're looking at a dog and, and and he just says, there's just a dog sitting there that starts barking. And he mm. says, you know, dogs can pick up on human vibes like that. And then it cuts to them recording like, good vibrations. Um, I'm getting some good vibrations off this song. Yeah. So there's a certain sense to the approach they take where it has these more standard elements, but also more unusual elements because it kind of mirrors Brian Wilson's own sensibility because sure. the Beach Boys songs have that um, immediate pop, catchy hit um, but he also was taking an increasingly experimental approach, particularly with regards to instrumentation. And the film has a lot of fun exploring that latter aspect, particularly in uh, the Paul Dano era, which is when they have all these, like, I'm writing the hit song scenes. Sure. And uh, he's working on Pet Sounds. And then he's working on Smile, which is the famous Lost Project, which yeah. never coalesced because he descended into, you know, mental difficulties and stuff and it explores all his like interesting ideas in quite a in quite a cool way cool. and um it's kind of fun to see him like having all this uh running about the studio while his uh, band is on tour and he's got like flute players in and he yeah. gets like timpanis in yeah. and he's um yeah trying all these different sounds and there's some very cleverly done sound editing where they reproduce all these different bits and pieces from the songs you know like yeah, the, yeah. um 
I, I, I don't know. I can't remember exactly which song it is that involves uh, timpanis, but you know, <laughs> just like bringing that in, or like when he um, just plucks the strings of the piano directly inside yeah. the um, thing rather than playing the keys and, and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that's quite fun to see, and uh, it's kind of it's kind of like two movies at once in a way. Sure. There's not a great deal of dialogue between these two halves. You could you could probably edit them together and just show one and then just show the other. Which is an interesting approach. I don't think it's bad. Um, and they have a different narrative purpose as well. Because the first half is, like, he gradually gets more and more overwhelmed by his mental problems as he gets more and more experimental with his music. And it ends... Uh, well, I won't, I won't say how it ends, yeah. but, like, it has a different kind of ending to the second half, which is a romance. Right. When he uh, meets Elizabeth Banks. as a kind of meet-cute in a... Uh, he's buying a car, and she works there as a car salesman. And uh, then that thing is all about this tug of war between her and his psychiatrist, who's played by Paul Giamatti, who like controls every aspect of his life. How's uh, how are the performances? Cause... The performances are really good. I think it's a real strength of the movie. Paul Dano and John Cusack look absolutely nothing yeah, I was like each say, other. Yeah, yeah, they don't look remotely the and same. They look nothing like Brian Wilson. <laughs> yeah, and they well, yeah, they don't they don't really look like him either, and they don't like do anything crazy with their appearance. John Cusack just looks like John Cusack to me. Yeah. He's so he's so familiar looking that you look at him and like that is John Cusack. But they're, they're good performances. I don't know if um, John Cusack and Paul Dano swap notes over their performances, but um, they work together well. Yeah. Like, it's obviously the same person. That's as, cool. And uh, he's depicted as a kind of sort of shy, retiring, not that interested in fame or money, a bit like nervous, just trying to get along kind mm. of guy. Um, and uh, I don't know if I'm just a sentimental sucker, but I bought into it. Yeah. And... Um, the success of the second half is basically that I buy the romance between him and Elizabeth Banks. Elizabeth Banks is also really good in it. I think she's really excellent in it. She might be the best in it because um, she has so little to work with by, compa- by comparison yeah, yeah, with sure, them. Sure. Her character is by definition the kind of supporting character as she sort of comes into his life and like rescues him. That's the kind I of, will support you. Yeah, that's, that, that's the kind of way it goes. And having this uh, guardian angel appears like makes it sound like she's going to be a little bit boring um but she's given a lot of uh rope by the director a lot of time is spent on her and um her performance is very good and so you she feels like a fully fleshed out person even though maybe like on close inspection she isn't really yeah so, so recommendation yeah. yeah a recommendation cool. from me let's check it out Yesterday I bumped into Imelda Staunton She was up with her dog and we got talking I asked her what she does when she isn't acting She said she likes podcasts for relaxing Imelda, when you're in the mood What do you listen to? She said I listen to one podcast I listen to one podcast All the other ones can kiss my ass Cause I listen to one podcast Film chat, film chat, film chat, film chat, film chat so um, there was more to our earlier story about Ennio Morricone, but we saved it for now. Yes. Excitingly. It's pretty exciting stuff. Uh, yeah. Another, another Film Chat exclusive. Another Film Chat exclusive. We probably have more exclusives than any other film-related media um, group. <laughs> We've got more exclusives than actual self-generated content. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so people are probably um, champing at the bit to hear what They're sort champing. of stuff Ennio Morricone has been working on. Um, 
for the Hateful Eight score. And exactly. we've got a bit of it. Yeah. And I, maybe some people are a little trepidatious. You know, he's super old. He hasn't done a, has he still got it in him? Can he still do it? Exactly. Years after the exactly. Fans? Yeah. I mean, has he been able to keep up with the times? You know, do yeah. old Spaghetti Western scores still sound relevant now? And, and what has he done to try to update them? Well, I happen to know that he's enlisted the help of one of the greatest musicians working today, Idris Elba, yeah. who, of course, insisted um, yeah. that he had to adopt his Luther persona. Of course. He was pissed off he wasn't in Django Unchained. He's like, what the fuck? Yeah, he rapped on Morricone's door, and he was like, you know... Rapped on his door, and then he's like, I'm going to rap on your track. <laughs> he loves rapping. <laughs> That's what happened. Let's see how that turned out. Brilliant. 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 A little a little incongruous maybe when uh, Luther arrives, but Well that's you know, that's Tarantino all over, right? Hopping the genres. Why not musically? Right, exactly. 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 Well, congratulations to everyone involved in the making of that. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for listening. And see you next week where we'll be reviewing um, Ant-Man. Ant-Man, I guess, yeah. and The um, sequel to Yes Man. Yeah, and the prequel to Anchorman. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. See you then, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.